This is the Washington State Indivisible Podcast, part of the Demcast Podcast Network. I'm your host, Stephen Cox. With racial equity issues top of mind, we speak this week with educator Erin Jones. In 2016, she came within a point of winning the race for the superintendent of public instruction and was the first black woman candidate to run for statewide office. Today, we talk about a series of online courses for adults and children on racial equity that Erin is teaching during the pandemic. And we get her thoughts on how we should be having the difficult but necessary conversations we need to have in this country on race. Our discussion is next. We are very excited to be joined today by Erin Jones. She is a former candidate for superintendent of public instruction. She ran back in 2016 and came within a percentage point of winning. She's also the first black woman to run for any statewide office here in Washington. She is an independent education and systems consultant who has been involved with our schools for 26 years. Since lockdown, Erin has been teaching an extraordinary set of online courses on racial equity for children and adults. I will also mention that she is a motivational speaker with two TEDx talks. Erin, I'm just breathless reading your CV. Where, where do you find the time? My mom my mom would tell you that I've been this way since I was about five years old. I just am <laughs> always going, 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 sports and music. And it just I've been this way my whole life. Well, it is impressive what you were doing with your energy. And, you know, I'll just let people know that I've invited you on in several capacities. I definitely want to talk about your coursework and I want to get your thoughts on schools. But first... You know, we had initially scheduled to speak about a month ago, and I had planned to start by asking you about how racial attitudes were finally shifting in this country following the uprisings around the murder of George Floyd and how we should keep that going forward. But now, over the last week, we have seen Jacob Blake shot seven times in the back by police and also a white supremacist murder two people at a peaceful protest. What are your thoughts on where we are right now? I'm not surprised by this. And I think a lot of a lot of especially white people are really surprised in this moment by all the very public racial tension. You know, I came to the United States in 1989 for college. I came in August of 1989. So 30 this is my 31st year in the United States. Um since I was born. I was born here, went away to the Netherlands where I was raised and then came back here for college. And I've been seeing the same violence, um, whether resulting in the death of black men or the abuse of black bodies in other ways, since I got here 31 years ago, um, it just has made the news in very public ways now recently, but it's not really a surprise to me. And so what's interesting is when George Floyd was killed and you know people were in an uprise all over the country, I remember saying to a friend, when will the next event happen? Because I bet we won't get through the summer without there being a next event, because there's always a next event. Um, And I think people are now aware, and we now have cameras everywhere. And so, you know, we're really just one videotape away from, and everyone has a camera on their phone. So, you know, when I first came here in the 80s, we didn't have the ability to just record things that were happening. And so I think a lot of people just didn't realize this was happening. But I will tell you at my college right outside of Philadelphia, I knew within my first year of being here, you don't drive while being black. And so I didn't drive. I literally got my driver's license as a 24 year old. 
um, because I, I witnessed what happened. Whenever my black friends and I drove in a car from my college in the suburbs of Philadelphia into the city, we got pulled over probably four out of five times. And here we are, we're college students at Ivy League, at an Ivy League college. Like we're smart kids. We're really great students. We are not causing trouble. We're not selling drugs. And yet we would get pulled over four out of five times. And so we just learned not to drive and we would take the train into the city. And so for me, even though that didn't result in the death of any of us at the time, there's this death by a thousand cuts that happens. And you know, one of my best friends in college who was black, one of we were only 10 black women on my college campus. She committed suicide the year after we graduated from college. And, and I know why, I mean, I don't need to know why, but I know why, because she was a black girl who had grown up in a very wealthy black family right outside of DC. Her parents were both doctors and she had never been doubted in her life until we got to college. And she had never been treated poorly until we got to college. And it was just so heavy for her. I know, I know this is why she took her life because it, she just was so broken down after four years of being, feeling beaten up every day and feeling like she had to defend herself and defend her brilliance. And um, I just know that it got too hard for her. And so I think about her, even though she took her own life, I really believe her life was taken from her in a number of experiences and encounters she had with people in authority who just didn't believe she had value. And, and so for me, this most recent violent interaction with police is just a sign of where we have been for a long time. And I, I hope it will wake America up that we have to do something and we can't afford to wait and there's a problem and we can't fix what we're not willing to face. So let's face it and do something. I just want to sit with your comments uh, for a moment uh, about your friend. Uh, it's it's just an extraordinary indictment, I think, of of us as a culture. Uh, and you mentioned also that you know back then, uh, cameras didn't exist. We have cameras now, and it's still not making a difference. And so, I, I want to talk a little bit about the work that you do in terms of facilitating discussions. Uh, around this, uh, you you have you have a real gift with this, and this is this is largely what you do right now. And you have said that right now, and this you know before when we were going to talk a month ago, you said we have a unique opportunity to talk about racial equity right now. I assume that you still feel that way. And so, with that in mind, what should that discussion look like? Um, first of all, we have to all realize that we are we each have a story of race. And I think a lot of times white people think they don't have a story of race. It's just race is just about black people. Race is just about black and brown and native people. Everyone in the United States of America has a story of race. Everyone is implicated. And I think for a long time, white people have not wanted to talk about it. Often, you know, often the people that I'm around, um, I happen to be a person of faith. And a lot of the white people who are people of faith think that if I acknowledge race, it means I'm a bad person. And I would say, no, not acknowledging it is just being naive and ignorant. Um, this country has 400 years of stories. It has told itself about skin color. And um, until we're willing to face that and really own our own place in the story of race, we can't move forward. And so I see my work as, first of all, telling my own story of race, um, but then engaging people in conversation about race. And 
I, you and I have not physically met one another before. So we've been on the phone together, but I use this analogy and, and it's a visual image. I see my role in the world um, as someone who invites people to a conversation about race. So there's this way of talking about race and there's this way of talking about race. And for me, I know there are those who need to do this work around race and just like get to the streets and work. My job is to invite mostly white people into for conversations about race and to say, yeah, it's uncomfortable. Guess what? Being this person is uncomfortable every single day. I don't get to not be this person. And in fact, I wear my hair this way on purpose. This is how it grows and I own it. I'm six feet tall and I got about five inches of hair, maybe six now after COVID. Um, <laughs> but I own this because it's, it's how I was birthed. And I wanna show up exactly as I was made intentionally. I do this with intention. It's not to make a political statement. It's to say, this is who Aaron is. And so I show up this way and I share my story and I invite you to also realize you play a role in my story and in the story of this country. And until we are willing to look back and, and take a look at our stories, we can't ever come to any unity, which you see right now, right? You see the disunity. We're not the United States. We're the divided people, right? And, and part of that is because we have not wanted to sit down at the table and face one another and acknowledge that you and I are both human and we, we look different. We are both human though. And can we center our humanity? So, you know, there are three words that I throw out um, now, really in the last month, everywhere I talk, humility, humanity, history. I show up with the humility that I can't possibly know all things. I can't know about everyone else's experiences. I can only know my own. I don't have all the answers. I need other people to build this table with me. Um, I just show up as one person humbly saying, let's sit at a table. I wanna center the humanity of every person who comes into my path. That right-wing conservative alt-right person as well as the left-leaning person. I wanna create a space for all of us to sit at a table as human beings first and center our humanity. And then we have to acknowledge there's a history in this country to how we have been together or not been together right? Reconciliation requires that there's been at some point we were together. There, we don't have a place where we were really together as human, equally valuable. Hum there's not that place and time in this country. So we got to recognize that and say, this is not about reconciliation, actually. This is about starting over and starting a, starting a relationship. You can only reconcile what you've already had. We haven't had, we haven't been willing to go back in history and say, oh, we've just never had a relationship. White people and native people in this country have never had an equal relationship. White people and black people as a people group, as a whole, have never had a level equal relationship. We gotta start from that place and that's history. We gotta acknowledge the history. It's not about shame, blame and guilt though. And that's why, again, I don't come like this. I come like this. Shame, blame, and guilt are not useful. It's um, because that causes you to focus on yourself then and not out. Okay, let's acknowledge we, some icky things have happened in this country. We have done horrible things as a country to people. We have killed whole swaths of people. We have marginalized whole swaths of people. Let's acknowledge that. Let's say we're sorry. Let's do our work to, rec to, to, get, to repair the breach, to say, to ask for forgiveness, and to begin to do the work of repairing. Humility, 
uh, humanity and history. And one of the things that you talk about is when facilitating these discussions, you do not intend to create a safe space. You create what you call a brave space. Can you talk about what you mean by that? Yeah. So often when you go into meetings and, you know, for those of you who work in professional settings like schools and businesses, we talk about norms all the time. And norms suggest that there's this normal way of being. And that normal way of being, I'm just going to call it out, is white middle class values. White middle class values become the norm. And so I've been pushing against that for a long time. And so I've talked about community agreements. How do we co-create the ways that we're going to engage with one another? And I've been pushing from this idea of safe spaces that are often talked about on college campuses. We, no one is ever truly safe in this conversation on race. We, there's no way to create a space for everyone to feel safe, to be honest. And in fact, I don't think safety is important here. I think what this requires, because we're in such dire straits, is courage and bravery. And so I've really been begun talking about brave spaces instead of safe spaces, because I don't ever get to be safe when talking about race. And I have a lot of white people say, well, you're Black. This is what you do. This is much easier to talk about for you. And I'm like, really? I'm usually talking to groups of 100 to 1,000 to 5,000 white people about skin color. That is not comfortable for me. And it's not. it shouldn't be comfortable for anyone. If we're really going to do this work that is really hard work, it requires courage and bravery. So when we talk about community agreements, I talk with people about what are the agreements that we need to make in this room for you to be your best and bravest self. And that means taking risks. It means sitting with discomfort and then pushing through discomfort. It means realizing that you may have come with best intent, with good intention, but you also may, with that good intention, hurt feelings or say something offensive. Just apologize when you do it. Don't get all defensive and say, oh, but I didn't mean that. I was just joking. You're taking it to just apologize. Just say you're sorry and commit to doing better. And then really important, show grace for yourself and for other people. So show grace. If you're at the beginning of this conversation and you say something really stupid, don't sit in that stupid and get guilty and shamed. And that's what a lot of white people like to do. And even progressive white people like to do it. Sit in that shame. That's not useful. Like show grace for yourself. Say, oh, that was really dumb. Okay, I'm going to move on now. I'm going to grow now. Get back up and get moving, get into the work, right? And that's that's really what the brave spaces are about. Apologize, show grace. Um, I'm imagining that people watching and people who are listening to the podcast are connecting with what you are saying and would love to avail themselves of some of the things that, that you have to teach. So here's why I bring in your 21-day racial equity challenge. This starts on September 15th. You had initially, and this is all online, you had initially wanted only white leaders and influencers but it's open to everybody now, correct? It is. And and in fact, I discovered this, um, the 21 Day Racial Equity Challenge is actually something I did not create on my own. The content for it, I did not create on my own. Um, right after George Floyd was killed, um, people were posting all kinds of things on Twitter. And somebody one day posted this 21 Day Racial Equity Challenge. And I remember looking at it, and I had already been teaching a one-hour racial equity class every day. And I was exhausted. I was exhausted. Even you work a lot, by the way. I'm just going to pop in here and say I've never seen anybody who works as much as you do. You are online every single day. 
83 days in a row I taught classes wow. um, and I'm still online. I mean, I've only taken two days off since March 6th, I think. Um, but I, I'm in the middle of teaching racial equity and then Maude Arbery happens and Breonna Taylor happens and, and, and then George Floyd and I'm just like exhausted, but I keep showing up every day for my class and I'm like, oh, this is all I can do. And I can barely get up to do this, but knowing that my class was counting on me, I just kept showing up. And then suddenly one day this, 21 day challenge popped up on Twitter and somebody jokingly retweeted my name and said, you know, somebody ought to teach this. And I was like, I am not right now. I've already been teaching racial equity and I, it's not my job to teach all y'all. And I, that was my initial reaction that day. And then literally two hours later, I'm out on a run and I thought, you know what? No, I'm actually going to do a class online and I only want white leaders. I want people in authority positions who have their hands on the pocketbooks, who are writing policy. I'm actually gonna do a four week course and we'll use the 21 day challenge as the content, but I will facilitate conversations for these white leaders. And I just want white leaders because I wanna be able to really be honest with them and hold them accountable in this moment. All these people who are on Facebook and Twitter posting Black Lives Matter as leaders. Like, I want y'all to do more than that. You need to do more than just retweet or repost some meme. Um, and so I started this racial equity class um, and it was amazing. We had over 50 people that joined and everything from superintendents of school districts to CEOs of businesses. I mean, just one district had like all of their school board members, another district had all of their, well, not all of their principals, but most of them joined. And it was this really amazing experience. And when it was over, I decided, well, let's do it again. And so we did it again last month. And um, then I needed a break. So I took August off because again, I have not had a vacation since, I mean, I've had two days of vacation since March. So wow. I was like, I need a break. So I took a month off and now we'll be starting a new class on September 15th, once a week. Um, we'll kick it off with an event and then each week we'll check in for two hours and I'll help facilitate some conversation. Um, and we're charging for it. It's not a lot, but we're charging because my time and emotional energy are important. And in fact, I'm partnering with a white um, non-binary uh, friend of mine, Dr. Jen Self, who is an expert in um, gender and LGBTQIA issues. And they reached out to me really right after George Floyd and said, how can I help you as a white person? How do I step in? And is there a way that I could co-facilitate something with you? And so Dr. Self co-facilitated for free the last um, racial equity course. And I asked them if they'd be willing to join me again. And so Dr. Self is joining me again to co-facilitate, which is just fabulous. So we are both college basketball players, former college basketball players, at the same time, like we oh, wow. literally played during the same four years of college. Really crazy story. Um, they are really little. I am really tall. They are blonde. I am not. Um, <laughs> we are a really great team doing this. And we want to model, um, you know, they are LGBTQIA. I am a Christian pastor's wife. And I love that I believe our partnership represents the best of who we can be. And I, I really believe in modeling. I believe we have to do what we say. 
And so I believe that this doing this course with Dr. Self is just such a great representation of what I believe is possible. If we could live into our best and bravest selves, there would be more opportunities like this for someone like Dr. Self and I to partner and to do life together. You are getting so much interest right now about the course. And I will say, and you mentioned this to me before, that it does cost, but you will work to make it affordable. We do. Yep. So it is pay as you can. And what I would what I would say to people with that is, yeah, definitely pay as you can. And I'm not trying to get rich on this course. We are not trying to get rich. And if this is really important to you, invest in it, right? Like stretch yourself. And again, it's not about this is not where I'm getting my money. So most of my money comes from big consulting contracts. And I want to say, like, invest in Black people doing work, whether that's me or someone else. If you say Black Lives Matter, then put your money where your mouth is. I think it's really easy to say, you know, I'm, I'm just going to pay $50 for this course because I have other, and then go in and get Starbucks for $6 a pop every day. Like sacrifice something for this. Don't, and this, again, this is not lining my pocketbook. Trust me. This is not where I'm making my big money, but stretch, make it stretch you a bit. Um, because I think, again, practice that discomfort, even in your pocketbook, um, because that says a lot to the people around you about what you're really about. I agree with everything that you said. Uh, people are wondering where to sign up for your classes. Where, where can people go to, to get involved? So if you go to athenaplace.com, athenaplace.com, A-T-H-E-N-A, place.com, you will see the 21-day racial equity challenge. You can go right to that website and um, and get the link, click on the link to register. There is space now. I can take up to 100 people and, and there is still room left. And if we go over 100, well, I'll just pay the extra to expand my Zoom account to make sure that we can accommodate all the people who join us. Okay, I'll have that information for people in the show notes at indivisiblepodcast.org. Again, that starts September 15th. I also want to talk about a coursework that you are doing for kids. It's called Becoming. Tell us a little bit about Becoming. So um, back in the spring, I when when all hell broke loose and I lost all of my consulting work, I decided... um, on March 9th, I decided, you know what? I don't, I'm not getting paid for anything. All of my consulting gigs disappeared with the pandemic. Um, I'm a public speaker. So, you know, nobody wanted anyone together in rooms. And so we hadn't figured out the online stuff yet at the time. And, and to be honest, I, in my mind thought, I can't teach well online. I don't, I couldn't imagine myself online. I'm such a reader of body language that I thought I just can't do the online stuff. But then on March 9th, I felt like, well, I'm, I don't do slow well. I don't do rest well. So, you know, how do I use what I do have? And I have technology. I have access to two iPads and a cell phone. And um, I'm a good teacher. So why don't I just go online? And so that's how the online started. And I started with a read aloud class um, to children, Monday and Wednesday in English, Tuesday, Thursday in Spanish. Friday in French or Dutch. I speak four languages and I decided, let me use the languages that I speak. And um, I did that. And then I did this racial equity class for adults. And then I decided to teach a class called um, Becoming a Change Agent. Because change agents to me, man, have always been about changing the world. I've always been about how do I, as an adult, show up, but how do I help young people become change agents? So 
we did a class called Becoming a Change Agent, and I invited into my classroom, like the first black Supreme Court justice in Washington state, the first Asian Supreme Court justice, all of these amazing people into my classroom. And I realized really quickly with technology, we can do anything right now. There's no limit to who gets my students get to visit with. But then I did that class for 83 days in a row and was just tired. So I took a break and the students were so upset. Like they did not want me to take a break. And even when school finished for them at the beginning of June, they were like, Miss Erin, we want to keep going. So we went till June 30th and I said, bye-bye children. I love you, but I, Miss Erin needs a break, which didn't happen. I didn't get a break, but I got a break from the everyday children's class, but the students have been asking for it again. Can we come back together? Now, I love Michelle Obama's book, Becoming. I love it. I've watched the Netflix special on it. And so what I thought is, what if I were to start another class called, called Becoming and really help students think about, if you look at Michelle Obama's special and read the book, she talks about her story from the very beginning. So how did she become the person she is today? And I love that notion of, again, it's humility, humanity, history. Having students go back through their story from the very beginning and unpack all the things that have happened to them, all the things they've accomplished, the skills they have, the talents they've, uh, they have, and, and really help them think about what are they becoming? I think we talk often about what do you want to be when you grow up? I actually want to change that question and ask students, who are you becoming? Who do you want to be? And that encompasses more than just a job. It's how do you want to move in the world? And, and what are the kinds of things that you want to accomplish in your lifetime? And, and so I suspect it will be a blend of, again, identity development and interrogation and um, sharing of pictures and sharing of talents. But also, I will continue to bring in my amazing friends who are everything from politicians to former NFL players to current NBA players. I have friends in every arena. And why not in this virtual setting, bring them into the classroom to meet students. Uh, and so we're going to meet right now, as I have it set, we'll meet every Friday um, from 11 to noon, or actually from noon to one o'clock, I think I have it set up every Friday. Uh, for right now, we may go more than that. There may be weeks where I meet twice a week, but for right now, every Friday from noon to one o'clock Pacific Standard Time, and anyone can join. And so if you are interested in joining that class, because Zoom gets bombed, if I just publish the, the Zoom link, you need to reach out to me personally. So um, I am on Facebook, Aaron Jones, LLC, Aaron Jones, LLC. Um, so you can send me a message there. I'm on Twitter at Aaron Jones, 2016. You can send me a message there. I'm on Instagram, Aaron in 2016. Um, or my email address, which I don't get to as much because every political figure sends me emails and it just all gets... Likewise. Hi. <laughs> nice to meet you. Oh. Yeah, me too. Yeah. <laughs> so um, Aaron at AaronJonesDreams.com. I mean, you can send me an email, but if I don't respond, send another one because it may be just that it got caught up in all the mess that is email. I will make sure that all of that contact information is available on the show notes, again, at indivisiblepodcast.org. And may I just stop for a moment and just say, you speak four languages. You were the first uh, black woman to run for statewide office. You came within a percentage point of winning superintendent. You're extraordinary. I, I just want to stop and just, just <laughs> acknowledge what everybody's saying in the comments here. You are absolutely extraordinary. 
Thank you. And you know, this is just a fun fact. This is a really exciting new development. Um, I just got a call from one of the Seattle Storm owners uh, two nights ago, and I'll be honored by the Seattle Storm on September 9th before their game. They are honoring um, unsung heroes. And what is so amazing, I don't know how they found me, but they discovered me and the work that I'm doing. And what she didn't know at the time is I actually tried, I was invited to try out for the Seattle Storm and the Portland Fire at 28. I was the oldest woman with the most children to try out that year. Um, so I tried out exactly 21 years ago um, for the Seattle Storm. And so it's just kind of incredible. Yeah, kind of amazing to have this opportunity to talk today and then to get to do uh, some online stuff with the Seattle Storm. And I'm a season ticket holder too, so it just is really exciting. After having all of my work disappear in March to be on these stages right now, I am incredibly blessed. Well, it's all just incredibly, uh, it's, it's extraordinary, everything that you're doing, everything that you've accomplished. I want to talk next about uh, our schools with you. Uh, this is something that you know very, very well. And specifically, I want to talk about racial equity in our schools. Mm-hmm. You spent many years with the office of the superintendent of public instruction here in Washington, and you wrote the definition of opportunity gap for the OSPI. Yes. First of all, what is the opportunity gap and how is it defined? So we used to talk about achievement gaps. And, and you'll still hear people talking about achievement gaps. And I really push back against that because it puts the onus on the very children who are often being oppressed and marginalized. And so we began, we changed the, I changed how I was talking about the term and began talking about opportunity gaps. And it was really, instead of putting onus and blame on children or even on teachers, it was saying, wow, we as a system need to take ownership for the ways that we oppress and the ways that we marginalize. And so that was the opportunity gap is really saying, where in the system are there gaps where students are missing out on opportunity? Now, how that has transitioned and in my own learning and experiences, we've now moved from talking about opportunity gaps to talking about racial equity and anti-racism. And so when I talk about racial equity, I talk about what does it require for all of our students, particularly those that are farthest from educational justice, to thrive, thrive, what would it take? And what that means is we have to look at systems and determine what are, where are the barriers? There are barriers to our students being able to thrive. There are also opportunities for us to provide supports in new ways and opportunity in new ways. And so educational equity is really, how do we take a look at success differently How do we allow our communities to define what success is? And then how do we make sure that we have created the foundation for all children in our system to thrive, not just to survive? I think we've done way too much surviving, trying to get students through a system to the end. And that's not not life-giving. Really what equity says is how do we really inspire and create the the structures and environments for all of our children and our educators to thrive and to be able to be their best and bravest selves, getting back to that brave space. How do we help our students to be the best and bravest selves, to stretch themselves and and to shoot for the moon and whatever that means, whether it's for your college or getting a mentorship or an internship somewhere, how do we help our students um, envision a dream for themselves and then provide the steps for them to get there, whatever that dream looks like for them. 
you know, you're you're kind of talking about outcomes here, and I'm wondering, just on the other side of that equation, how inequity really specifically plays out in a nuts and bolts way in our schools from your observations. I mean, this is this is really where we learn a lot of our systemic racism, right? Yeah, for sure. And actually, um, I really talk about inequity in um, in really eight spaces. I talk about inequity as it relates to how we're hiring, who we're hiring, how we're hiring, who we're retaining. Um, so in human resources is one place where we see inequity. In our state, which is a little bit different than other places, but not so much different, about 90% of our educators are white. Um, the majority of those are women. And what that means is for a lot of our black and brown and native students, they will never have, nor will they ever see anyone who looks like them as a classroom teacher. Now they may see a food service person, they may see a security guard, a coach who looks like them. And I honor those people, our custodial staff, critical, bus drivers, critical. And there's a message that is sent to our young people when they never see themselves in front of a classroom or leading a building or leading a school district, right? And so. Human resources in the first place, um, curriculum and instruction. We see inequity, you know, if, if our students, white, black, native, the very first time they hear about black people as slavery, think about how that, that starts, that germinates this notion of where black people belong, right? But the same is true for our Native American folks. If our students are only hearing about um, wars and where Native American people have just been destroyed, or these tellings of the Thanksgiving story that are just not authentic at all, or this notion that Native American people and the tribes exist in the past as if they don't exist today, right? We are setting up these dynamics and curriculum and instruction that cause inequity. Um, family and community engagement, we assume everyone, all quote unquote good people should join PTA as if that's the only way um, for families to engage. And, and PTA traditionally has been very much like the middle-class white way of doing business. And so really reframing how we think about what does it mean to engage community? Who gets engaged? How are they engaged? Um, professional development. How are educators being prepared for this work? Do they even know what equity means? Do they know um, where, where they are sometimes perpetuating some really racist ideas Right, I think a lot of educators really with great intention are perpetuating many of these inequities, many of these racist tropes and ideas, not because they're bad people, but because they just weren't taught properly. They weren't trained appropriately. And so professional development, thinking how we're training people, um, leadership, who's making decisions. Oftentimes, one of the, the primary reasons that I ran for state superintendent is because I had worked as the assistant state superintendent for four years and being on Capitol Hill all the time, you walk into the, the gallery of the state legislature and look out at who's making decisions. The average age is probably 55, maybe 60, 95% um, white, really great people for the most part, really good intentions, nice people, and making decisions for people they have never met, never seen, don't have any skin in the game, right? And so you, when I talk about leadership as being kind of that seed of, of inequity, when you have people making decisions about people they don't know for people they've never spoken to, even people with good intention will make bad decisions 
for our Black and Brown and Native communities. And so thinking about who gets to be at the decision-making table at the state level, at the federal level, in school districts, right, in buildings, and being really intentional about making sure we are centering the voices of those who've been minoritized for far too long, where are our resources going? I mean, the way that public schools are funded in the United States bakes inequity into the system. So we fund school districts based on property tax. Well, so where are the poorest communities? Where are the quote unquote worst schools, right? I can already tell you where they are. And so we've got to rethink how we're funding schools. Um, the last two are assessment. I am such a, um, a big believer that one of the greatest things in the pandemic is we got rid of state tests. I think state tests and high stakes testing is incredibly problematic. Um, I could do a whole session on that. I'm not going to. <laughs> and then lastly, school culture. You know, how are students experiencing school? Discipline is one of the ways that um, students of color, black, brown, native students experience discipline disproportionately in, in punitive ways. And that has to be acknowledged. Who has access to advanced programs like AP and honors? who ends up in special education and the emotional behavior classes. Um, all of those things are, are around school culture and how do students feel and move through um, their experiences in school. So those are the eight areas for me that, that I think are really important in school spaces to interrogate around equity and inequity. It's a lot to take on. And I, I hear my audience and I know them and I know that they're thinking, how do we begin? Where do we begin? Certainly, we have an election coming up. And, you know, as you mentioned, leadership is very important. What are some of the other ways that we can begin to take on some of these issues of inequity in our schools? So I, I tell people when I think about um, equity, it is such a big thing. Um, equality is much easier. Just give everybody the same computer and expect them to, you know, we love to do that. We love equity. We love equality. And that's the state test is about that, right? Like give everybody the same test, have the same bar, much easier. Equity requires lots of conversations with lots of people that don't usually end up at the table. So one of the things I tell people is I think about equity in three ways, in three phases, really. Number one, you got to start with your own story. You have a story. You have a story of race. And so um, I would encourage each one of you who are listening right now um, to take a take time, even if that's a couple weeks or a couple months, to really interrogate your story of race and culture. How have you moved through this country? How has either your color privileged you or not privileged you? How how have you gotten to move through the world based on, on skin color? And I tell people all the time, race may be a created thing. It is a social construct. And we have 400 years of stories we have told about race. And so what are the stories that have been told about you? What are the stories you've internalized about yourself and other people? You've got to do that personal work first. I think a lot of white, especially progressives, love to jump to fixing the system. But if you haven't first looked at your own self, you will make decisions about the system based on your own limited understanding of how you see the world. So you have to do your own self work first and determine where have you had privilege? Where have you not had privilege? Where has your race and your gender, your socioeconomic background, your political persuasion, where have all of those things informed how you get to move through the world and how you think about the world? So first do your own work. Secondly, think about your own community. As you consider your community, who in your community has been invisibilized or erased? And who in your community has been oppressed? 
So equity and inequity happen in context. There's your start in your community, start right where you live. Who are the people that have been oppressed and marginalized? Who are the people who are not on city council, who are not on school boards, who do not have a seat at the table? Figure out who, who those people are and do your work of getting to know them. Talk to them, um, get into groups and, and learn their stories and listen and listen and listen and don't write off their stories because you haven't seen it doesn't mean it hasn't happened. You just haven't heard, okay? And so just listen to the stories of your community. In the end, you with community can write policy and change policy. But I think too often people wanna jump to fix those eight things without having first done their own personal work. You have to do your personal work first. And so there are lots of books to read. I have sent you a list of books that I recommend um, on my Twitter, on my Facebook account. I have a list of books and podcasts. And if you are a white progressive, I wanna encourage you right now and you care about schools, to read nice or to listen to nice white people. It's a new podcast that just came out. Um, I have listened to the whole thing. And I think especially for Washingtonians, it is, uh, you know, we call ourselves progressives out here. Uh, I'm gonna say y'all do, but I often passive progressive is what I call folks out here. Um, nice white people who really mean well, but are doing an incredible disservice often to the very children that you say you want to care about. Again, with really great intention. So I want to encourage you, listen to some podcasts. I tell people often, this is a marathon, not a sprint. So I think people right now in the midst of this very public racial tension want to sprint to the finish line. It's taken us 400 years to get here. And I'm not saying I want another 400 years to get out of here, but we're not going to get to an end by November. Whoever we elect, although I would suggest we not elect the person currently in office because I think he's displayed very openly. Anyway, I, don't I think you'll get a lot of agreement on that. So enough said. Yeah, to even think about. Um, but white people, you got to do your work with other white people right now because white people, even in Washington State, are voting for that human being. And and y'all, you got to do your work with your white people because it's not it's not us. Right, and there are things that I can't say to people that you can. So you can start out, do your own work, and then talk to your people, talk to your family, talk to your neighbors, help them understand. Um, you know, one of the, the tough conversations that I have to have with people, um, my husband is an associate pastor in a church that is, um, it's a blend of white and black and Latinx, um, still predominantly white. But you know, the whole pro-life movement to me, I've talked about it as a pro-birth movement. It's about, you know, just the womb, just what happens in the womb. And, and where I've been really challenging some of my conservative friends is, man, y'all, you cannot say you're pro-life until you care about what happens after that baby comes out. And there are way too many of you that are happy with schools being crappy for brown kids and not getting healthcare. And so, you know, folks, we got to talk to our conservative people if you have them. And if you don't have them, I want to challenge you. We're not going to change the system until we build bridges to folks that are just, they're ignorant and naive. And I see part of my work as being a bridge builder. So I go into those spaces. I speak in conservative white churches and I share my story because I believe part of our problem is we don't even want to sit down at the table with people like that. And so they continue to believe what they believe. How are you received when you go in and do that? Really? Well, again, I don't come in like this. I come in like this, right? And so I think people are moved by narratives. 
and I share some really powerful narratives with folks um, and it moves them to begin to think. And, and so I find it because I share real stories about real things that have happened that most of these people have just never heard before, suddenly their ears are open in a new way. I know I can't change anyone in one conversation. What I hope to do in every space I go in and especially conservative spaces, I want you to just leave more curious. If I can get you more curious, you will begin to see everything a little bit differently and your ears will be open in a different way. And, and that's what I hope that I can accomplish. I can't change anyone's mind in a 45 minute speech or a 20 minute sermon, but I can get them listening in a different way. And I can get them now thinking, oh, wow, oh, maybe I need to look at that differently. And that's curiosity does amazing things for people. Well, you're using your skill set as an instructor to extraordinary end. And as you were alluding to earlier, you have uh, an extensive list of resources that I will be very happy to share with listeners at indivisiblepodcast.org. There are worksheets, there's a reading list, there's coursework, uh, there's recommendations for podcasts, as you mentioned, nice white people, books, movies, and of course, your coursework. So I'll have information about that for people as well. Before I let you go, and thank you in advance for your time. Um, how do you ultimately gauge in your mind if we are moving in the right direction on racial equity? Do you, do you see metrics? Is there a way to quantify? Is there a way to qualify? So, you know, I, that's so hard to say. Um, here's the funny thing. I, I don't know that we're going to be able to tell in a month or two months or five months. I think the the metric is more... 10 years from now, where are we? Um, because I think a lot of people are very performative in how they're showing up right now. So Black Lives Matter, we're all about it right now. We're all about it right now. We're also in a pandemic and people can't leave home. So it's easy to post a meme. It's easy to read Robin D'Angelo, who, by the way, I just want to throw this out. I know Robin, I think she's a great person. It's problematic though, when a white woman is becoming a millionaire on the backs of black people's murder. So I just I just want to throw that out. Um, be careful. Uh, I want to encourage you to read and invest in black and brown people right now. And I, I do, I like Robin, but I, I just think it's really problematic when her book is the number one book on the New York, New York um, Times bestseller list and she's getting paid $30,000 for a speech because of what's happening to black bodies. So just want to throw that out. Again, no shade on her. Just we have to be really careful how we're showing up to the work. Um, what I will say, um, the day that Ahmad Arbery, the news of Ahmad Arbery came out, one of my white friends here in Olympia, where I live, texted me right away. And we know each other really well. I actually preach at his church whenever he's on vacation. I'll go. So I'm the black lady that goes and preaches in his church, which is right down the street from my house. And we live in a community that, a lot of military, so we have a pretty diverse community, but his church is 95% white and he just loves me. So he comes, he'll, he'll ask me to come in and his people are really great to me. And he texted me and said, Aaron, I don't know what to say on Sunday, but I think you might. Would you, he said, I know this is a lot to ask of you, but would you be willing to come and preach on Sunday? And I actually was really excited about just that someone would value me enough to give their, their service over to me in this moment with a really pretty conservative church. And what is really amazing is I live in the neighborhood and because we've been sheltered in place and all we can really do is walk outside um, 
I'm a walker. And I would say seven, six, six out of seven days a week, somebody from his church will pass me while I'm walking, either in their car or they're walking by or riding a bike by. So many of them follow me now on social media. And so many of them want to thank me every time they see me for showing up as I do. And so that to me says growth. Like what if he hadn't invited me into that space? Maybe some of them wouldn't be thinking about this stuff, but now they are and they're following me. And when I go live on Facebook, they're there and they're listening with new ears. And so I, I feel like, I feel like there's growth, but I feel like it's going to take time. And I suspect a lot of them are still going to vote for Trump because they care about the one or two issues that he says he cares about. Um, so it, it's going to take time, but I'm willing to keep investing in people like that who are really curious and um, who are wanting to grow. I'm all about that. I don't have time for people who are not curious. I don't, I, I only have so much energy. So I will show up for people who are curious and asking questions. I don't show up for people who are antagonistic and aggressive and just want to be haters and, and bait me. I, I just have no time for that. Well, I, I cannot thank you enough for doing the work and really inspiring us to do the work and being a leader and especially, especially for your generosity of time today. Aaron Jones, it has been such an extraordinary conversation. I, I can't thank you enough. Thank you for having me on your show. I appreciate it so much. And that is it for today. Our website is indivisiblepodcast.org and our email address is indivisiblepodcast at gmail.com. The Washington State Indivisible Podcast is a production of Get Creative, Inc. and is part of the Demcast family of podcasts. Learn more about Demcast at demcastusa.com. Thanks this week to Catherine Fye-Sears. Special thanks to Lori Caldwell. And as always, my thanks to you for listening. We'll talk to you next time. Bye.